Church, we're going to turn our attention now to Matthew chapter 13, and Irene Hoyer is going to come and read for us out of God's Word. And I would encourage you, please, if you would stand, if you're able to stand out of respect for God's Word as we turn our attention to the Word of God. Irene, I'll pass it off to you. Good morning, church. Matthew 13, 44 through 46, the parable of the hidden treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Irene. Church, would you pray with me? Lord, as we now turn our attention to your word, we come to this moment and ask that you would help our eyes to see and our ears to hear, that our hearts would be open and soft to hear your word to us, to hear your spirit speak to us. Father, if that's not happening, it doesn't matter what words I speak in the next few moments, it doesn't matter how eloquent they are or how um, well thought out they are, it doesn't mean anything because your spirit has to be working in our lives to open our eyes, to enlighten us, to help us to see And and Lord, to take your words and those seeds that are planted and grow them up to full maturity. And I just pray, Lord, that that would be what happens today. I pray certainly, Lord, that I would be faithful and obedient to speak your words, not mine. Father, as always, I pray that if any are my words, that they would be forgotten. Lord, that I would just just be led not to say them at all. Um, And so, Lord, I pray that you would use me as a weak vessel in the next few moments to just communicate your word for your people this morning. I pray all these things to your glory and to your name. Amen. You know, sometimes in a story, whether it's a movie or a book or whatever it is, it can be hard for us to figure out what the main point of the story is, who the main character is, who even the villain is in the story. When we come to the stories in Jesus' days, the parables in which he teaches, some of those are challenging to figure out what's the main point. Others are not. In this context, Jesus makes it really, really clear what it is he's trying to talk about. He is trying to help us see the kingdom of God. And he's not just wanting us to see the kingdom of God in one simplistic thing. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is like a diamond that has many, many different facets. And each of the parables in this section of Scripture, in Matthew chapter 13, is intended for us to help us to see certain facets of that diamond, certain aspects of the kingdom. And so that's what we want to look at this morning, because that's what Jesus' intent is for us, to see the kingdom in a clear perspective Now, with that being said, we need to start, though, with the diamond as a whole and think about and consider what it is to talk about the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? Even for a first century Jew that Jesus was talking to, the idea of the kingdom of heaven might have had very different communications from other people. If you'd asked the first century Jew, like, what is the kingdom of heaven? You would have gotten a variety of different things, even for them. And for us, it's even more challenging because we don't live in a king and kingdom type of circumstance. That's not the country in which we live in. That's not the concept or the structure in which we're used to seeing things. And so for us, it's even a little bit more difficult to think about the kingdom of heaven and what that actually means when Jesus is talking about it. So two things I want to draw our attention to in regards to what the kingdom of heaven is about and what it means when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven. First, it's about government, reign, rule, authority, 
Who has it? How far does it extend? Is it over specific individuals? Is it over the universe? Is it over life and death? Is it over justice? Is it over everything? That's what the kingdom of heaven is about. When Jesus calls us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is praying for something very specific to happen. Because what we see and what we recognize in Scripture is that after the fall, there's things that rule this world, not because God's not able to, but because God has allowed that to take place because of the sin. There are things that rule. It's sin and death and the enemy. Those are the things that rule over us. And when we pray the kingdom of heaven to come, and we, we pray that the, the kingdom of God to come, what we're asking is that the reign of God would be restored and would restore all of creation to its rightful place. Last week in our Discovery Bible study that we talked about right after uh, this service, we asked the question, what makes something good? When God created things and he stepped back and said, it's good, what makes it good? What makes it good is that it's doing the things it was intended to do. That's what makes something good. Well, sin and brokenness and death has changed that in our world. It's changed that in the way we live. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, what we're doing, we're longing for the day when Jesus fixes all of it and restores everything down to the brokenness in ourselves. Like when we get cancer, that is not God's intent for the cells in our body. Like we want the kingdom of God to come and to make everything its rightful way and put it in its rightful place. It's about the entire reign of God. And listen, You know what makes a kingdom good? It isn't the geography, and it isn't the laws. It's the king. If your king is bad, your kingdom will be bad. If your government is bad, your nation will be bad. One of the reasons why we celebrate the 4th of July is because when this nation was founded, it was founded in many ways on some of the principles of God, and that's what we've been blessed by by so many years If your kingdom or your king is bad, your kingdom will be bad. But our king is a good, wise, trustworthy, loving, benevolent king. He's a good king. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, what he's talking about is the reign of God the rule of God, but he's also talking about the presence of God. And this is something we've been talking a lot about in the past couple of weeks. But Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, was the presence of God. He is the embodiment, the reign of God. He dealt with our sins so that we might become citizens of his personal kingdom and so that we might be reconciled back to God. Brothers and sisters, you know that's why God, and that's how God originally created all of this, that we would walk with him, that we would dwell with him, that we would be with him, that there would be no separation between heaven and earth and man and God, that we would be in his presence day in and day out. It was our sin that changed that, the brokenness in us that changed that, and he wants to restore it. I love Ezekiel 37, verse 27, puts it this way. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Just sit in that for a second. The Almighty God, who spoke everything into existence, who needs no resources 
who can think and make things happen, who knows all things. He was the first and the last. He says he wants his dwelling place to be with his people. If you think God is some distant God who does not care, some distant God that wants to be away from you or that doesn't concern himself with you, this verse clearly says the opposite. He wants his dwelling place to be with his people. And he wants them to say, he is my God. And he wants to say that we are his people. So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, Sometimes it's good to do those mental translations. When you see the kingdom of heaven and you see the kingdom of God, say in your head, the reign of God and the presence of God. And so even in these parables, Jesus is saying, the reign and the presence of God is like. The reign and the presence of God is like. And now he moves to the parables. And what we see in these parables is that the reign of And the presence of God is like something that has immeasurable value. In the first parable, the reign and presence of the God specifically is likened to a hidden treasure. So a man's walking by and he stumbles upon something he didn't expect. His eyes have been opened to something that had been there all along, but it had been hidden. And he now sees it. In a similar way, the people of Israel had been looking for a Messiah. They'd been looking for the kingdom of God to come, and they didn't know how it was going to happen. It was a mystery to them, but now Jesus is present. The very presence of God is with them, and he's about to make a way for them to enter into the kingdom of God. And so that's why when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying, I'm about to make this happen. Kingdom of heaven is at hand, and and it's a hidden treasure. A treasure that has immeasurable value, but the mystery is about to be revealed. And for us, living in this day, in this time, the mystery has been revealed. And what I love about this parable is we don't know where this man was coming from, and you have no idea where he was going, and we have no idea what he was doing in this field. And you know why? Because none of that matters, does it? Because as soon as he found the treasure, he stopped in his tracks. Have you ever had a moment like that in your life where you've been seen something or had experienced something that you just stopped in your tracks? Like maybe you remember back in the days, some of you, maybe you're in the midst of this right now or you hope it happens one day, but that first time that you meet that person that's going to become your spouse, you meet that pretty young thing or that handsome young hunk, whatever that is. I can say young now because I'm in my 40s and so it feels that way, right? And you see that person and in that moment, like it didn't matter where you came from and it didn't matter where you were going. The only thing that matters is you want to get to be close with that person, right? Like you're stopped in your tracks. You experienced that. If someone walked up to me today, one of y'all, which I love it if this happened, but I doubt this is going to take place. But if one of you came up to me this morning and said, hey, I just want you to know, I know the numbers of the Powerball $500 million jackpot. And I don't even know if that's what it is right now. I don't track it. So I, I don't know. But if you came up and told me that today, it wouldn't matter what I was doing this morning. It wouldn't matter what I was doing in that moment. And it wouldn't matter what I had planned the rest of the day. Guess what I would do? I would go get me a Powerball ticket with those numbers, right? Like we'd all do that because you'd understand that that thing has the potential to completely change your life. 
And so you would stop in your tracks and change everything. This is what the reign of God and the presence of God is like. And when you see it, when your eyes are open to it, no matter where it is, like it should stop you in your tracks. And it didn't matter what you were doing before, and it doesn't make any difference where your life was headed prior. It's all going to change. Because the only thing that matters at that point is getting the treasure. This is the treasure that has been found. And in the second parable, the immeasurable value of the kingdom of God, the reign and the presence of God, is expressed in the form of a pearl. Now, in this parable, it's a merchant. Now, it's important that it's a merchant because what does a merchant do? A merchant goes around seeking the thing that he is looking for. In this case, it's pearls. And so a merchant would go around looking for pearls. Now, maybe he would find pearls, and then he would take those pearls, and he would sell them. And he would sell them for his own personal gain, his own personal provision, and to kind of gain what it is to have the good life in whatever world that he lives in. Maybe he goes to one market and he buys pearls at a low price and then goes to another market and he sells pearls at a high price for his own gain. So this is a merchant and he's got all these pearls and he's looking for new pearls, constantly trying to figure out how to buy and sell more and more pearls. But he finds one, one pearl. This is a pearl that is not one to buy and resell. This is a pearl for him to have. This pearl is so valuable, it is so great, it is so beautiful that it causes the merchant's life, his purpose and his direction to shift from buying and selling for his own increase, for his own provision, to the pearl itself. The prize is the pearl, simply to retain it, to possess it, to have it. Jesus is reminding us, he's showing us that no matter what else we are pursuing, no matter what else you're looking for in your life, no matter what else you think is of value in your life, whether it's the pleasures of the world, whether it's um, your political re recognition, whether it's the praise of men, whether it's your own vanity, whether it's your own health, whether it's finances in your business and worldly wealth, or whatever it is, whatever pursuit you are for, to then turn upon your own life and your own living all of that is a waste compared to this pearl. This one pearl to have. His reign, his presence is more valuable than anything else you or I can pursue. And just getting it, just getting his reign in your life, and just getting his presence in your life, in other words, being reconciled to him like that, is the prize. That is the thing to hold on to. One of the aspects of these parables that I think is really, really important for us is that when you come face to face with a treasure like this, whether it's the hidden treasure or whether it's the pearl, it requires a response. Right? So you come face to face with that $500 million Powerball ticket, it requires a response. You can reject that response or, or you can reject that ticket and you say, I don't want it. I'm going to keep going on my way, which we'd all say is foolish, right? Or you can take that thing and you can appropriate the right response to it. 
And it's interesting to think about this because the kingdom of heaven, when you come face to face with the kingdom of God, there is only one appropriate response. The value of the kingdom is not subjective. I want to say that again. The value of the kingdom is not subjective. If I were to stand up here and say that in my pocket, I have a rookie football card signed by Patrick Mahomes. The value of that car card is subjective, isn't it? If you're a Dallas Cowboys fan, sorry, I got a little sick to my stomach just saying that. Like, like Donald Jackson, our, our wonderful outreach director, if you're a Dallas Cowboys fan, like that holds no value to you whatsoever. All right? Like some of you, even if you're a Chiefs fan, you'd be willing to say, yeah, man, that's worth like 10 bucks. Some of you'd be like, that's worth a million dollars. Like that's very subjective. It's only worth what someone is willing to pay for it. This is not the case with the kingdom of God. It is an objective value. There is only one response that is appropriate for the reign and the presence of God. Every other response is a failure to understand its true value. So two things I want to look at in regards to what the appropriate response is. The first is a complete redirection of our love. This is not a command to stop loving all the other pearls. That's that's unnecessary. Because when you see the true value of God and his presence and his reign, you have to have him. You have to have that pearl. Like, I don't need you to tell you to stop loving something else if you see the value of this great thing to love. Like, no one had to tell you, guys, when you married your wives, to stop loving all the other women out there because you found the one you wanted to be with, prayerfully speaking, right? Like, you found the one. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 37. He says, you... You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. This is the command. This is the right response. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And he's just repeating something out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel. And this gets really personal because anytime you see this text and you see the capital letters of the Lord, it's his name which is Yahweh. And so it's hero Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Let me make it even more personal. Last week, I got to baptize Ethan. Some of you were here for that, my son. And as he has expressed his faith in Jesus Christ, I can say to Ethan, hear, oh, Ethan, Yahweh, your God, Yahweh is one. Ethan, you shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. I could say that about every single person in this room. Put your name in the place of Israel in that moment. 
See, what's fascinating about this, Jesus doesn't say, and neither does Deuteronomy, that it's okay for you to say, well, I want to love the Lord my God with some of my heart, some of my soul, and some of my might. It's all or nothing. That's the appropriate response. Anything less is not sufficient for the King of Kings. Anything less is not sufficient for the value of what we are talking about when we talk about the reign and the presence of God in our lives and in this world. And you might be tempted to say, like, how do I do this? How do I love that way? But here's the thing. If you'd have been at my wedding and you would have heard the pastor say to me, which he didn't, but just hypothetically, if you would have heard the pastor say to me and Karen in that moment, Darren, Karen is your wife. You are now one with her. You should love your wife with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You wouldn't say, well, how's that going to happen? How's that going to work out? Because this is a command of the heart that forces us to recognize, even to say that he totally loves her, that I would totally love her. And ask the question, does he totally love her? Or to go, I don't know that he does love her. This is an issue of the heart. And hopefully, because I've seen her value, I will have a singular focus in my life to love Karen. A pure and undivided focus to love my wife. The question for us is, do you, do I, do we love God this way? Do you see his reign in and through and over your life as the greatest of treasures to attain? Do you see his presence, which has been offered to you through the work of Jesus as a pearl that you can have access to? Your answer may simply say, I don't know. And that's fair. How many of us would say, I don't feel that way towards him? I don't feel this kind of love and this kind of emotion towards him. And I don't feel an emotional attachment towards God. Listen, brothers and sisters, your emotional attachment towards God isn't what should drive you. Your feelings, I hate to tell you this, they are fickle, untrustworthy, and they will ebb and they will flow. This is true with your relationship with your spouse as well. If your love is dependent or based upon your feeling, you are in serious danger. You are in serious danger. Love recognizes the value of something and decides and acts in certain ways towards the object of that love. To stop loving someone is to choose to stop loving them. You don't fall in and out of love. You might fall in and out of emotions, and you might fall in and out of lust, but you don't fall in and out of love. Love is something you choose to do. If I stop sacrificing my kid for my kids, I am choosing to stop loving my kids. If I stop playing with my kids instead of doing what I want to do, I'm choosing to not love my kids. If I stop teaching them because I'm too tired, because I don't want to, I am choosing to not love my kids. If I stop, stop hugging my kids and kissing them, praying with them before they go to bed, I am not loving my kids. doesn't matter what I feel towards my kids in those moments. Thank goodness, right, parents? 
You love them because you've chosen to love them. Men, I'll stop for just a second. For you who are married, every time you choose to divide your heart and look at another woman, you are choosing to not love your wife. It's a choice. It doesn't have anything to do with what you feel. It's a choice. In the same way, we can have a passive love for someone. But I would dare say that that is not love at all. Imagine if a man gets married to his wife. And ultimately, all he really wanted to do was get married to his wife. And now that he's married, now that he's got her, now that they're in a covenant, he just goes on doing all the things he did when he was single. Hanging out with the guys late at night, playing video games, spending his money for himself, like just not engaging her at all. Is is that love? We would all say that's a horrible way to live. And that's not at all what God intended. Love has to continue. There's a continued pursuit in that relationship. Like, if he just does that, what is he communicating? He's communicating that he's clinging on to other loves still. He's holding on to some of those other pearls, not the one pearl. And how tempted can we be to do this? To just think salvation is all that matters. Brothers and sisters, if salvation from sin, if that is the goal, then once we've prayed and once we've said the little mantra or the statement or the confession of faith, then we'll just go about our business, doing what we want to do, because now we have salvation. But brothers and sisters, I would say this. Salvation is never the goal. He is the goal. That's the point of the kingdom of heaven. His reign in your life is the goal. His presence in your life is the goal. Your salvation is not the goal. Now, salvation is a wonderful benefit, amen? It's awesome that we get to be saved and we get to be entered into the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God because he loves us so much. But he is the goal. And if he is the goal then you never stop pursuing him, even though you have him, right? If knowing your wife more and more and more is the goal, then you never stop pursuing her, no matter how long you've been married. And those, by the way, are the good marriages. When you continually pursue one another, no matter how much of one another you have found. Joshua gives us a warning in chapter 23, verses 11 through 12. Be very careful, therefore, to love Yahweh, your God. For if you turn back and you cling to the remnant of these, and he's talking about the nations, but it includes so much more for us, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these things before you. So let me, let me talk about what this warning is for us. If you are the merchant and you're constantly been out there looking for pearls to spend and to use so you can gain the good life, whether that's satisfaction or whatever that is, and you find the one pearl, but you try to cling on to all of those other pearls, you will be in danger of losing the great one. How tempted can we be to cling on to some of those things? 
to cling on to those things. You know, some people will continue to struggle with sins in their life, and I think a lot of the reason is, is because if you really get down to the bottom of it, they're still clinging on to the hope and the promises that that sin has been giving to them. And as a result, God is not driving that out of their lives. And they're continuing to be enslaved to it. The appropriate response is not one where you can hold on to these pearls and have the great one at the same time. You have to let all of them go to get the great one. And so the question is for us, are you clinging to other loves? Are you clinging to some of these other pearls? Second facet to an appropriate response is a complete redirection of our pursuits. We are all pursuing something. All of us. The question is whether or not the main pursuit of your life is his reign and his presence in your life, as these parables suggest it should be. Many fall into temptation to view his reign in his pearl, in his presence, as just another pearl to have for our gain. Does that make sense? They look at it as just another thing to use and to consume and to spend for increasing the good life in their life as it stands right now. And so a lot of times what can happen is we can come become very content to just consume Jesus, to consume his teachings, consume his benefits, consume his blessings, consume his hope and his peace and his joy and his love, and all the while fail to pursue Jesus. If we see his reign and his presence as immeasurably valuable and we seek to love him with everything we have, then we have to pursue him. Not as a duty, but as a joy. First Chronicles 16 speaks of this joy. Glory in his name, in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Ryan quoted another text that said the same thing this morning. Rejoice in the seeking. Because the more you seek, the more you find. And the more you find, the more you will engage and have the treasure, the pearl. If you don't seek it, it won't be there. Well, it's there, but you won't have it. Your pursuit of the Lord and his strength and his presence should be a constant sale, a daily sale of everything else to gain him. Let me just give you some specifics of how that looks in our lives. It should be the daily sale of your old views. So every day, you should be laying down the way you view the world, the way you view decisions, and taking up his. You should sell those things. So here's the thing. The issue of abortion. It doesn't make any difference what Olivia Rodrigo says or what the news says or what the culture says about abortion. It only matters what he says. And so you wake up and you lay all those things aside and you say, I'm going to sell all of those pearls and I'm going to only buy his, which is the right way to view things. And so you wake up every day to do that. But you also wake up to sell your own self-rule. It is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. Not your will, but my will be done. Does that happen just naturally? No, no, no. Like every day, you got to sell that off. 
It's like, I, I, I know what those things promise, but I'm not going to follow those things. I don't want that pearl of self-rule in my life. I, I only want him to rule my life. So every day, you got to sell your own self-rule. you got to sell your own righteousness. You will never be good enough to get into the kingdom. You will never be good enough to be underneath his reign or to be able to have his presence. That is only something you gain through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so every day, you sell it off. You sell any, any part of you that still thinks you can depend upon your own righteousness. Every day, you sell that off. You sell your sinful pleasures. What are these things? What is sinful pleasure? I love the way C.H. Spurgeon puts it. He says, any pleasure that savors sin is to be done away with. Any pleasure in your life that savors sin is to be done away with. Do you still cling to pleasures that savor sin? If so, you should sell those things off for the sake of the pearl of great price. It's the daily sale of worldly treasures. This is the one we often think of when we read this text, and it has to be considered. What is the primary purpose of your worldly goods? Is it for you? Is it the increasing of your pleasure and the increasing of your glory and the increasing of your name, or is it for the increasing of his glory and his name in your life? There's some parables that, speak, parables that we'll talk about later that speak specifically to that. As I thought about these parables, and I'll wrap up, though, here in just a second, but there's three dangers that I think we need to be reminded of. When we come face-to-face with the treasure of God's reign and God's presence, the first danger is this. It's the danger that we would believe that we can pursue hard enough to gain the treasure of the kingdom. In other words, I can do enough I can sell enough. I can give enough. I can gain his presence by just doing the right things. No, you gain his presence by dying to those things, by dying to your ability. And if you believe that this is what faith is about, is you trying to do this on your own, then you're missing the point. We strive, we absolutely strive, but it's not dependent upon us. The second danger is similar something that I said earlier in our time together. But if the idea that we think that if he loves me and he saved me and I'm in the kingdom, that's good enough. And I can have my cake and I can eat it too. And he doesn't care about my holiness and he doesn't care about my pursuit of him. I can just have salvation and I can have the world. That is also a lie. You cannot have the world and salvation at the same time. Because God and the world conflict with one another. The spirit and the world are in conflict with one another. The third danger is that you see the treasure. You recognize its value. But you believe that you can wait to respond. Oh, I know. I know the treasure of God is good, but you know what? I'll wait until I'm in my 60s, 70s. 30s. I'll wait till after I get married, and then I'll go back to church, and, and I'll try to gain the treasure. I'll, I'll wait until later. What if later never comes? But even regardless of that, I would say this, that if you see the treasure, and you say, it's not worth me giving all for it now, you don't really value the treasure. 
If you're engaged to a gal for 17 years, you probably don't value her the way you should. And gals, if you're married or you're engaged to the guy for 17 years, it's probably time for you to realize he probably doesn't value you the way that he should. He's trying to cling on to something else. You don't get to do that with the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters. And if you're tempted to think, I'll just, I'll just value him later, you might find that you'll never value him at all. Because he calls us to love him with our whole heart, our whole soul, and our whole mind. In 1904, William Borden graduated high school. Already, William was the heir of immense wealth. And after a trip around the world, William decided that he wanted to become a missionary. With so much promise, so much he had in front of him, he received a lot of pushback from the people in his life. One particular friend expressed his disbelief that he was throwing himself away as a missionary. It is believed that in response to this pushback, Borden wrote two simple words in the back of his Bible. No reserves. I'm going to hold nothing back. No reserves. And that's exactly what Borden did. He held nothing back. In college, he gave himself to the gospel ministry. And upon his graduation from Yale, after an extremely fruitful ministry with all of his wealth, all the potential possibilities that were in front of him, Borden turned down multiple high-paying job offers and again wrote two more simple words in the back of his Bible. No reserves, no retreats. And Borden, he didn't retreat. He pressed on. He went to Princeton Seminary, graduated, and set sail for China, hoping to work with Chinese Muslims. On his way, he stopped to Egypt to learn Arabic. And when he contracted spinal meningitis, within a month, the 25-year-old William Borden was dead. And it was written of Borden in a biography, this, Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. Borden had found the pearl. And prior to his death, the story has it, there were two more words written in the back of his Bible. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Let me ask a question. Do you think that Borden regrets his pursuit of the pearl now? No. He says, like Paul, I counted all loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Church, if God, his reign, and his presence are our true treasure, I would commend you to do this. Withhold nothing. Withhold nothing for him. May it be said for you, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. And I would simply encourage you this morning as I wrap up that you would consider that. Does your life look like that? How it looks is not for me to say. 
What you specifically do is not for me to say. It's not for me to tell you. But it is for me to say, we are all called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our might. Not some of it. Because it is a valuable treasure that is immeasurable in its worth. And it's worth laying everything else down for that. And so as we close, I want you to consider that in your own life and just ponder it and let the Spirit of God open your eyes to see whether or not there are areas and things you're still clinging to, even if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're here this morning, even if you say you believe in these things and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but if you've truly not seen him for the treasure that he is and you've truly not said it is Christ or nothing, I want you to consider the treasure of Christ's reign in your life and the presence of God. You may or may not have experienced it yet, but I'll tell you right now that those two things are worth everything else. And he would say, come to me. Come to me, all you are heavy laden, trying to gather up all your pearls trying to gather up all those other things in your life that you think are going to satisfy you, that you think are going to lead you down a path of life, come and gather all those up and give them to Jesus. And as you've labored for those things and you've found that they don't satisfy, come to the one who does. That's the invitation that he has for us. You know, the, the, the scripture says that the, the road is narrow and the gate, or the, the road and the gate is narrow to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's open. You just have to walk through Jesus to get there. And Jesus isn't okay with some of your heart, and some of your might, and some of your soul. For Jesus, it's all or nothing. And I just encourage you to come to Jesus this morning. So we're gonna sing a song this morning, but before we do that, I want to lead us into a time of communion. So let me pray. And then we're going to take just a moment to come before the Lord and to lay these things before him and ask him to work in our hearts before we come to the table. The table which reminds us of the work of Jesus that has opened the door to his kingdom. Father, this morning as we look at your word, I pray that you would help each and every single one of us to have our eyes open to the immeasurable value of your reign, your rule, your government, and your presence in our lives. Father, I want to pray that for us as we come to this moment now, that if there are things that we are clinging to, and we're still holding on to because we just... We're not quite ready to let go of those things. Lord, I pray that this would be the morning we would just release them. Father, if we're like the man in the field and we find the treasure, but we're just not sure we want to deviate our attention and deviate our direction from where we were headed and where we think we were going, Father, I pray that this would be the morning that we would let our entire life be ordered by gaining the treasure in that field. I pray, Father, that you would help our eyes to be open. 
I pray, Father, if there's anything in us that is hindering our pursuit of you, anything in us that is hindering our walk with you, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be convicted of that by your spirit, to lay that down, that we would hear your voice say, you want to dwell with us. That you want us to say that you are our God and that we are your people. I want you to take just a minute of stillness. I want you to just lay these things down before the Lord. Examine your heart. Are you finding the treasure in the field and running to sell everything else to buy the field? Are you the merchant that was out looking for all kinds of other pearls and you found the great one that's worth possessing? And you've gone to sell all your other pearls and get rid of all your other pearls just to have that one. If not, confess it to the Lord and lay it before him and say, I'm still clinging to some of these other things. Will you help me to love you with my whole heart, my whole soul, and my whole might? Just take a couple of moments to go before the Lord before we come to the table.